0: Hello, and welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soulishchurch.com. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, um, just real quick, uh, this is written by the great, the late great King Solomon, writing, giving us. A look at life under the sun, which we find time and time again as the series is entitled is a uh, it 's a vision of vanity that 's what Solomon is leading us to look at he 's absorbing all of obs- observing and absorbing I guess you could say all of life under the sun and, and when you detach God from it there 's this meaninglessness to it and so Solomon has been leading us on a vision to look at all sorts of things in life um, and through it there 's this taste of this sort of bitter taste that ultimately we might reach for something greater. Uh, We've been saying it this way, Ecclesiastes is a taste of what's bitter so that we might reach for someone who is better um, and ultimately have meaning in the things of life. And so we've looked at so many different aspects of meaning in life. We talked even last week about our religious worship being here right now. And this morning we're going to talk about, rather Solomon's going to talk about money. Money, 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 money. Money. All right, and so let's follow Solomon here, Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, I'll begin here in verse 8. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. Solomon writes, he says, if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter, for high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all, Even the king is served from the field. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. this is also a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he eats, also he eats in darkness. And he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him. For it is his heritage, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his inheritance and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, chapter 6, and is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor have? the poor man have, who knows how to walk before the living. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. This is the word of God for the people of God, to which we say, thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. If you could join me in prayer. Lord, uh, thank, you for, thank you for your word, um, we say that every morning, God. It's it's a true reminder to us and an expression of our heart, an expression of gratitude for the gift of your word. Um, and then there's times where we say it and it's a different kind of gratitude. It's It's like this morning, God. We're thankful for the truth of your word. That sometimes is not necessarily what we want to hear, stuff that is hard to hear. But as your word says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You're a good friend. And Jesus, you have faithful words for us today that are for our betterment, Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, would you use your word? Would you give us ears to hear what you are wanting to speak to us today? And may we leave here, God, more centered not on the love of money, the love of self, the love of wealth, May we leave here more in love with you, Jesus. Would you speak to us today? Holy Spirit, I ask that you would take what I have and what I don't have and use it for your glory. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, um, rather appropriately, I'd like to preach this morning from this title. The title of my sermon this morning is God, Greed, and the Good Life. God, Greed and the good life. Uh, It was Oscar Wilde who said it so well. He said that when I was young, I used to think that life was all about money. Now that I am old, I know it is. When I was young, I used to think that life was all about money. Now that I'm old, and I have things like bills, and kids, and diapers, and Costco memberships, Shout out to Dana. Sorry, Dana. No offense, bro. All right. Now that I'm old, I know it is. I know that life is all about money. We all know that money is central to our life. For many of you right now, you are working a job for no other reason other than your paycheck, other than your money. Many of us, we give our whole lives to this end, to money. We live for money. We need money to what? To live, central to money. Yet, isn't it interesting, despite how central we know money is to life, isn't it interesting how much there is a tendency to sort of move it to the side in our relationship with God? We tend to sort of disconnect it from the things that God cares about, or at least we give God partial access to it. Okay, I'll give, Lord. I'll give. Here, I'll give. But don't don't talk about my spending, okay? Don't look at my lack of saving. Don't look at my debt. I mean, there's this tendency for us as people to create this sort of buffet style mindset when it comes to our relationship with God. And the thing we often leave at the buffet line is a lot of what the Bible has to say about money. We know this, right? That Jesus had a lot to say about money. Jesus understood the the centrality that money had to the human life and its effect on the human heart. Even here, Solomon in the same thread, has so much to say about money. Now, what's interesting when we read the scriptures and we get a glimpse of what the Bible has to say about money is we might find something rather surprising. One of the things we might find surprising about what the Bible has to say about money is that the Bible doesn't speak about money in and of itself in a negative way. The Bible doesn't demonize money. A lot of people have misquoted the Bible and said that it's money that is the root of all evil when really we know the scripture says that it's the what the love of money that's the root of all evil. Uh, Jesus spoke uh, beneficially about the money, about the importance of laying up your treasures in heaven. In fact, the Bible uses money, the illustration of money, to describe our connection and our relationship with God and what it means to be sons and daughters of God. If you read Ephesians 1, you see that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And Paul goes on to list the richness and the wealth of what we have in Jesus. If money was evil, why would the Bible use that as an illustration to describe how rich we are in Jesus? You're with me, right? Money can be used for some incredible things. God knows this. You look all throughout the New Testament and see how the mission of God was carried forward through the church of God because of the generosity of the people of God. You see, Paul writing to churches saying, thank you for your generosity. It's amazing what money can do. Yet on the other hand, that same means that can build an orphanage and plant a church, can tear a marriage apart. Money can, solve, can cause someone, with a lack of it, to take their own life. The power of money. I'm thinking of a man in the Bible that had interaction with Jesus. He was, he's called the rich young ruler. I want to talk about the power of money. Jesus encounters this guy. This guy encounters Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to be saved? And, and Jesus goes through the list of all that he has to do to inherit eternal life. And, and this man kind of checks them all off and goes, I've done all of those things. But Jesus knew despite his external behavior, he knew the one thing that was truly keeping him from God was that he had another God and that God was money. So Jesus said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then come follow me. The Bible tells us this, that even after getting a glimpse, imagine seeing Jesus with your own eyes in the flesh. And even after getting a glimpse of Jesus, the power of money kept this rich young ruler from following Jesus. He said, I'd rather have my money than have eternal life. I'd rather have the value of what's in my pocket than the value of knowing you, God. The power of money. I've heard it best described as as an amoral thing. Money in and of itself it's not good or evil. Uh, it's a tool. It's kind of like a hammer. Okay, don't worry. I'm all right. I got a grip on this thing. I know what I'm doing. I'm not going to hit any nails. Don't worry. Then we'd have to worry here. But it seems the way the Bible describes hammer is, and you may have heard of this illustration before with like a brick before, right? In and of itself, this is not an evil thing. It depends on whose hand it's in. In the right hand, this is a great tool to repair Um, a broke-down, dilapidated home, to to fix a door, to to do something good. It it can be used for the benefit of building up. But also, in the wrong hand, this could be a weapon. You could weaponize this thing. You could break things down. You could cause destruction. Well, money is the same thing. See, the problem, understand it this way. Here's central. Write this down. The problem with money is not money. The problem with money is the human heart. The problem with money is not, in, in, is not money in and of itself. The problem with money is the human heart. And that is exactly what Solomon is leading us to observe here in Ecclesiastes 5. He's leading us to observe the tragedy of a life that worships money. Or rather, we should use the words of Solomon, right? The vanity of a life that's spent worshiping Money, not stewarding money as a gift, but worshiping money as a god. Now, the word for this is greed. Greed. Now, Oscar Wilde also said that the biggest problem with greed is that nobody's greedy. Or whatever, now, right now, whatever your definition is of greed, isn't it interesting how we often apply it to someone else? Them, they. Those greedy people, those people that love money, those rich people. We tend to apply greed often uh, very, uh, very reductively to classes, that, the rich class. That's the, the greedy ones. Uh, isn't it interesting? Jesus said this in Luke 12. He said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Isn't it interesting that he said, watch out? Right. Be, another translation says, beware of covetousness. Watch out for greed. It's interesting that Jesus said this. I, I think it's because greed is this unique sort of idolatry. It's this very subtle sin that's hard to spot. You've got to watch out for it. I mean, it, it doesn't, he doesn't say that about any other sin. Like, hey, watch out for adultery. You might, you're in a situation, you go, oh, you're not my spouse. What's going on? Or watch out for murder. Oh my gosh, I'm killing you. Ah! Right? He says, watch out for greed. Watch out for it. There's going to be a tendency for all of us in this room to read something like Ecclesiastes 5 and be thinking about them. And be thinking about they. But Jesus, he often spoke about the love of money as one of the main dividing lines, not just between the rich and God, but between people and God. And so let's look at this here. Here in Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon helps us understand a bit, kind of get a grip on this pervasive, subtle thing that we all struggle with, the love of money, greed. The first thing he leads us to look at is what we'll call the corruption of greed. Did you see it there in the first two verses? Solomon says, if you see the oppression of the poor... And the violent perversion of justice in a province do not marvel at the matter, for high official watches over high official and higher officials over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all, even the king is served from the field. So the way that Solomon introduces greed is he, he opens our eyes to see a corrupt economic system that's running on greed. Did you see that? A corrupt economic system that's running on greed. Uh, he, he lays out first, I love this, he lays out the ideal. The ideal is found there in verse 9. This is a great practical scripture, probably on how to run a government too, but I'm not going to get into politics here. Hello. Verse 9 says, the profit of the land is for all. Do you get what that's saying? It's saying that that when it comes to business and commerce and earning a dollar, the the profit, it's an equal playing field. If you put in the work, you deserve the wage. Someone say amen. amen. You're like, I know. Trust me. Okay. I got my wage. It's an equal playing ground. That's the ideal. This is the vision even in the Garden of Eden of cultivate, of of put in labor and reap the benefits of the fruit. You could say that that there in verse 9 is a vision for how things should be, equal opportunity for all. But verse 8 tells us how things are. In verse 8, we see that instead of there being equal opportunity for all, you have oppression happening because of greed. You have the rich... Watching out for the rich as they take advantage of the poor. He says, Don't marvel when you see high officials oppressing the poor because all the high officials watch over and watch out for the other high officials. Um, this doesn't just mean that every high official has a superior. What he's saying there is, don't be surprised at this. Every high, when you're looking for justice, be careful who you go to, because that high official that you go to, to tell the other high official, they're watching out for each other. Okay? The rich are watching out for the rich in Solomon's day, and they are taking advantage of the poor. It's a corrupt system. He calls it the violent, did you notice the language there? I love Solomon's uh, poetic language. The violent perversion of justice. It's violence. And it's all rooted in the corruption of greed. But I want you to see something about how greed can corrupt us, how the love of money can corrupt us. It doesn't just corrupt a social economic system. What's at the root of this corrupt system is a corrupt mind. It's corrupt people. Corruption. The word corruption has to do with being subject to and being fallen and, and, and aimed towards decay away from its original purpose. The original purpose is equal opportunity. Everyone gets blessed, but through greed, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, that that through greed, what you experience today is you experience the corruption of the mind. It's amazing. Money will lead people to do things that no one would do in their right mind. Maybe there's stuff that you have done for money that you're like, I never planned on. And here we see the corrupt mind, it leads to a corrupt value system. It goes, money is the most important thing. Even over people who are made in the image of God and according to God, people are the most valuable thing, not money. So you don't run your business at the expense of people. Your life's purpose is not about getting money despite whoever you step over. No, the vision of the Bible is the opposite. You don't use people to get money, you use money for people. To help, to bless. John Wesley said it this way. He said, he said, when it comes to money, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. That's a great vision. Make as much as you can. Go for it. Shoot for the stars. However many figures, whatever it is. Make as much as you can. Save as much as you can. And give as much as you can. What a great filter to run a life through. But no, greed takes that and flips it upside down. It corrupts it and says, no, no, no. If money is my God, it's amazing what I'll sacrifice for it. The corruption of greed, and we see it here. We see a great evil being done. We see the poor being oppressed by the rich because of greed. And what is the root of that? Well, Paul tells us that it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 and so he goes on to describe that. He goes on to describe the love of money, which I'll call number two, the seduction of greed. You have the corruption of greed, which, which, which uh, corrupts us from our intended purpose and God's intended vision for, for money. But you also have the seduction of greed. You have the love of money. You have the, the love, he says here, of silver. Verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. He who loves silver. Silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase, this also is vanity. So, so this is at the root of the evil that's going on there in his day. It's these men loving money more than people in God. And he says it's not worth loving. Now the danger here that these people have fallen into is that they have succumbed to the seductiveness of greed. There there really is, isn't there? There's this sort of attraction to money. Let's be honest. We're not loving money you know, as a choice, most of us. We're loving it through this tendency to worship something that's attractive to us, that has the illusion of giving me something that even God can't. There's a seductiveness to it. That's what makes temptation temptation, isn't it? It's the lust of the eyes is often what riches are described as in Scripture. And you think of Eve wanting to eat the fruit of the tree because of what it could do For her, as she looked at it, she just imagined, man, if I only had that, and especially in this comparison culture that we're living in, living on everyone's filtered version of their lives on Instagram, there's just this constant fuel to want it more. To have what they have and then be worshipped as they're worshipped and project this vision of a life that's successful. It's seductive. But isn't it interesting what Solomon is saying? He's saying, though it's seductive, I love what he's saying. He's saying this, it's overrated. I love that. No, That's not really talked about a lot. Hey, getting rich, it's not all it's cracked out to be. Getting that money, he says, I, I know it's seductive, I know it's glimmering, I know silver's shiny, But but he he gives us four things that it can't do for us. Look look at these four things. He talks about satisfaction, solutions, sleep, and security. All the things that we're all trying to get through money. He goes, first of all, satisfaction. Um, He who loves silver is not going to be satisfied with silver. Now, this is one of Solomon's themes, right? That if you are in search of satisfaction under the sun, you are going to be left empty-handed. Money can't give you what only God can. There's a lack of satisfaction. There's a, there is, In Ecclesiastes 3, Solomon tells us there's eternity in our hearts. And no amount of wealth can fill the whole of eternity. So, so there's a dissatisfaction. But notice what he says. Here is what that looks like. Verse 10, he who loves abundance cannot even be satisfied with increase. That's kind of what it looks like when you're, when you're searching for satisfaction in money. What you're looking for is that number. And if I could just get to that number, you ever felt this way? If I could get that raise and make that much money, I can, I can finally save. I can finally be comfortable. And then I could finally, you know, maybe at the end, maybe I'll give to, to the church. Man, we'll see. We'll scrape off, some, off the top, right? But that wasn't a dig, okay? But that, that's how it often runs. We go, if I just hit that number and Solomon says that number's fleeting. Because you get there and it, it wasn't enough. And you go, how am I still in debt? How do I still have credit cards? I did Dave Ramsey's class. Where's the financial piece? Okay. (laughs) I've gone to the university. All right. I'm still flunking out. Okay. (laughs) He says, he who loves wealth, if you're chasing wealth, you're always going to be at the spot where it's never enough. You'll always need more. And there'll always be people that you'll leave in a trail because you're always going to be reaching for something that cannot be grabbed. It's an illusion, despite what Instagram says. The seduction of money, it can't give you the satisfaction you're looking for. I'm not saying that money can't help a few things, but the love of money, it's the root of all kinds of evil, all kinds of evil. Not just satisfaction. He goes on to say, not only will money not give you satisfaction, it actually won't give you solutions. Now you're going, I don't agree with Solomon. Let's read what he has to say. He says, when goods increase, I love this, they increase who eat them. I love that. The more money you have, the more food you have, the more mouths you have to feed. The more money you have, the more favors are going to be requested of you. The more you have, it's not that the less problems you have. Yeah, maybe the problems you have right now aren't there, but now you got new problems. You got rich people problems. What we call first world problems, right? But, but it, it might sound cute, but it's, it's sincerely difficult. When goods increase, man, that, that's, that's going to be, once I get that raise, that's the solution. I need that amount of money, but you get there, and you find all a whole new layer, new, as they say, new levels, new devils. It's like, whoa, I ain't met this devil before. Okay, the devil of that raise, the devil of, the, and, and it's interesting too. You can think about it this way, right? Where goods increase, they increase. Who tax them? More taxes, more government. I mean, this is, this is sort of the illusion that, that, that Solomon is stepping into. That money, though it, it might glimmer at us, it might be seductive, it cannot give us satisfaction, and is not, it is not going to be our ultimate solution. He says this, what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? I mean, I love that Solomon doesn't beat around the bush. Like, Solomon is going to talk about things in life that cannot uh, satisfy us, but he's not going to act like they don't gratify us. And that, that's, why saw, that's why Ecclesiastes is refreshing. It's like, oh yeah, I feel, okay, good. Solomon's human. So Solomon, he says, Here's, here is what the profit of money actually is to see that you have it for that moment. He says, really, because money is so fleeting and, and it, it, it's just gonna constantly bring up new problems, the best case of satisfaction in money is to have that moment where you get paid and for that split second before your bills come out, You get to see your account filled with some money. Wow, that's the profit. Oh, there it is. I'm not going to refresh this page. Because when I do, the number will be down. I have a mortgage. And the borrower is slave to the lender. But for that moment, there's the profit. There's the profit. Um. It's this illusion of solutions found in money. That might be the profit you get, but, you know, Jesus said it this way. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? There's no check you can write to get you into heaven. There's no check you can write to get on God's good side. The reality of scripture is that despite how much is in your physical bank account, all of us have the same spiritual bank account. We're spiritually bankrupt. And I don't have it up there, but maybe I should have put an S there for savior. Money makes a horrible savior. Jesus is a great savior. Um, it can't solve all my problems. It can't solve my spiritual problems. I mean, how many of us have seen marriages that if money could solve marital problems, it would have. It's true. Now we believe that that money is central to the mission of God. God uses money. It's you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but soulless Church costs money. <laughs> it costs money. Uh, you know, make disciples for free. Uh, thanks, bro. <laughs> thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. It's perfect timing too. Maybe that's the Savior because I was about to talk about how Soul's Church costs money, and then it's Savior. You know, but. But we realize this, even as a community, we realize and this has been our heart from the beginning: is money can't be the thing that accomplishes the mission of God at Soulless Church. So we sought to pray for that first. We're not going to pass the bucket and say, "Come on, come on, all right." The Lord sees your heart. Give, give, not reluctantly, right? But but this is the heart here: is understanding that it cannot give me the solutions that God can. Look at the the, the fourth one: is sleep, sleep. He says. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. So whether he has a hot pocket for dinner or a steak dinner, because he has worked so hard, this is the, the, the more lower class, lower middle class man, he's labored, he's tired. And isn't it interesting, the irony here, that when he goes to sleep, he's a rock, sleeps like a rock, but the rich man, the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep so all the money in the world all the sleeping pills you could buy he's saying at the end of the day you cannot get the peace of mind that you're looking for through more money i know it feels like it but you can't get it you won't find sleep like a laboring man and the contrast is interesting it and actually uh, the the poetic kind of scheme of it, it, it it's supposed to make us think about the rich man who got who kind of like sat around all day and got his full feast in but now he can't sleep because his stomach hurts that's the idea you're sick from all of, your, uh, all of your gluttony and all of your materialism. And, and it's speaking here of rest, right? Like if I, Here's the seduction of money. The peace that you're looking for is found on the other side of that raise. The peace that you're looking for is found on the other side of that job. And Solomon is warning us saying it's vanity. Don't. Don't chase it. Don't chase it. And then lastly, notice this, security. This is something we're all looking for with money. A sense of security. I should say an ultimate sense of security. And I hope you're getting what Solomon is saying here. He's not saying that there's not going to be some satisfaction. He's not saying there's not going to be some solutions. Or, you know, if you make money more than what you're making right now, you're never going to sleep, right? He's talking about that's the theme of Ecclesiastes, the ultimate purpose ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate solutions, the ultimate rest that's found in Jesus, and ultimate security he talks about. He says in verse 13, there is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Look at this evil he's seen. Riches kept for their owner to his own hurt. Now the word kept there, it has to do with preserving by possession is the idea. Preserving by possession. Uh, What should come into your mind with the word kept there is not like Yeah, I'll keep this for you, but it's like keeping it, keeping from you. Like finders, keepers, losers, weepers kind of a thing. Like it's a clenched fist. That's the image he gives us, is somebody who in their greed, they have so reached for money that once they got it, because it's so much their savior, they are like breaking their fingernails with their grip. That's how tight it is. got to have it. I have it now, and now that I've got it, I've got to keep it. I need security. It's my security. And so there's no generosity in a hand like this, is there? There's also no freedom in a hand like this. It's bound by the very thing that's within it. He says that those riches are kept for the owner to his hurt. Notice this, those riches perish through misfortune. Verse 14 says, so that when he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. Isn't this amazing? This is how money is, isn't it? Um, how many of us, we're not trying to make money, we're trying to keep money. Anybody? You know what I'm saying? Making money is easy. Keeping it is hard. That's where the money's at, if you know what I'm saying. You know that feeling of like, um, like, we all have jobs, we get paid. Do you ever feel like money leaves faster than it comes? And again, it's that reward of seeing it for a moment. And that's what Solomon's speaking to. No matter how hard you try to control your security, he speaks about sort of the interruptions of life, misfortune, he calls it. That business dealing that you got into that you're like, oh, now looking back, I shouldn't have done that. An investment you made. I've got a list. <laughs> and he's speaking about the pain that that person is feeling because th- that money was what their security was in. If I could just have that. It's like the rich young ruler. Just, Jesus says this. He says, give it to me. I have something better. No. No. But there's no control over the circumstances of life. Right? This is, in retrospect, this is easy now, but you would have said this over 15 years ago about the stock market, people would have thought you were crazy. I mean, it's crazy. You think about this stuff, the lack of security. But not just, listen, notice this. He doesn't just speak about the empty handedness in life, because isn't it interesting? Verse 13 talks about him clenching his hand, the word kept there, clenching his hand. Verse 14 talks about there being nothing in his hand. No matter how tight he tried to squeeze and protect it, it was gone. But here's what he says. He says, here's the reality of life, though. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, naked he's going to return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. This also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. So so he talks about the empty-handedness in life that can happen, but he talks about the empty-handedness in death that's going to happen to us all. Naked as he came, so he's going to go. Just as he came into the world, he's also going to leave. Um, it was Alexander the Great who his his funeral wishes were that he would be buried with his arm hanging out of his grave, so that everyone could see the illustration that he's leaving just as he came, empty-handed. He even had, I think, a, a whole chariot of riches and everything come uh, behind him and behind his hearse to show that he can't take any of it with him. And this is richly biblical. Jesus said it this way, do not lay up treasures on earth where it can be destroyed, where it can be stolen, where it can be corrupted. He said instead of walking around with a clenched fist over your funds, well, there's a better way. Hold it with an open hand. Lay it up in heaven. You see, if you try to keep it here, there's no certainty you're going to keep it. But if you hold it with an open hand and you give it to God, you get to pass it on to the next life. you with me? If you hold what you have and surrender to God and you lay it up in heaven, you say, God, I'm going to do this your way. Well, it's a path towards the good life compared to what we'll close with, which is the path of destruction. Go to this last one, the destruction of greed. It says in verse 17, this is such a sad place For greed to take anyone, for the love of money to bring anyone. After loving money, after trusting in money, after squeezing tight to money, it says all his days he eats in darkness. And though he's looked to money to be that savior we talked about, he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Anger. And I imagine that anger has to do with God bitter towards God. God, why would you let this happen? When money is your savior, you blame God for everything because you don't, you don't know him as a good savior. You don't know him personally. What a sad place, the destruction of money. Now, in the New Testament, uh, Paul speaks to how the gospel leads us to a whole different way when it comes to money. Um, he says this. He says in verse Timothy 6, 8, he says that godliness with contentment, that's great gain. This is huge. Godliness with contentment. Uh, Contentment looks like an open hand that says, God, whatever you give me, I'm going to thank you for. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to receive with joy whatever you give me. Knowing this, as Solomon said, we brought nothing into this world and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these things, we shall be content. He goes on to say this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. And here's what we just read about, which drown men in destruction and in perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil from which some having strayed from the faith in their greediness, notice this, have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. This is what Solomon gives us. He says, this is where this guy ends up. When money is your savior, you give everything for it and you're left with nothing in the end. And it's like Paul's leading us to think about something here. By using the word pierced, right? Pierced with many sorrows. Uh, Paul knew the Torah well. He He knew that the Messiah would be pierced. He knew that Jesus would be pierced in his side. He knew that Jesus would be pierced in his hands. He knew that Jesus, that though he was rich, that Jesus would become poor. And on a cross, he would be pierced. So that we, through his poverty and we, through his piercing, the piercing of the man of sorrows, that we can become rich. In other words, we could have a much better Savior in Jesus. A much better Savior in Jesus. See, money, it causes us to give up everything, to be left with nothing in the end. But Jesus gave up everything for us. Think about the opposite. Jesus says, I'll do it for you. I'll sacrifice myself for you. I'll purchase your life from death, not with silver or gold, but with my own blood. And he gives us everything in the end. It's amazing. The contrast. Why be pierced through sorrow with the love of money when Jesus was pierced for you? Right? The destruction that can come when we love money. This is a picture there of the gospel. How Jesus gives us a much better way. Here's what Paul says in Second Timothy, uh, in the same passage rather, in First Timothy, he goes on to say this. Then he says, "Command those then who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. That's the insecurity, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy without even sparing His own Son Jesus." See this picture of a God who's so much better than all the things we have? Here's what he says. Not only is he better, he's the one who's given you everything you have. So don't trust in riches. Don't love riches. Don't serve God because you can't serve God, and, or don't serve money because you can't serve money and God. But trust in Jesus, the living God, who has given you everything you have. And that's where Solomon goes on to say, it's a better way than the way of corruption, seduction, and destruction. He says in verse 18, here's the way to go. Here's what I've seen. Notice this. It is good and fitting, verse 18, for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he has toiled all the days of his life. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive it in his inheritance and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Now, this is awesome. I said in the beginning, the title of the message is what? It's God, greed, and the good life. This is where Solomon takes us. Solomon kind of paints a picture for the greed life. He goes, here's the bad life. Here's a life that leads to destruction. It's a life that trusts in and worships money. But through the gospel of Jesus, through, th- through seeing a Savior who's so much better than anything money can give me, I-, I am born again, and I am led to a different way of life. I'm led to what we could call uh, the good life or a blessed life. A blessed life. Um, now, the word blessed is abused a lot by prosperity preachers, um, just to be honest, um, And we tend to think of it in a very one-dimensional way, right? Like blessed, having stuff, having stuff, this blessed life. Uh, And and Solomon goes on to describe a blessed life um, in contrast to a stressed life. (laughs) That's what he goes on to say. He goes on to say in chapter 6 that there's an evil which I've seen under the sun. This person whom God has given riches, but he doesn't have the power to eat of it. Verse 3, he talks about a man who's extremely wealthy. From verse 3 down to verse 6, he's extremely wealthy— But he says, "But an unborn child, a child that hasn't even come into this world, is better off than him." Because here is the tragedy of this man who has it all. Though he has all the material stuff, it tells us this that he's never in life been satisfied with goodness. Satisfied with goodness, he says, "That's that's such a sad life to live. That's a life not even worth living." He says, "That's hard words." What Solomon is doing here is giving us a vision of what the blessed life is. I think that's a great vision of what a blessed life is. Would you agree? How many of us want to live a life satisfied with goodness? Man. To go, like, put my hand on the pillow at night, and despite how much I have in my account, despite how rich they are compared to what I have, at the end of the day, this is what we're looking for. We just want to be satisfied with goodness. Solomon tells us there at the end of chapter 5 that that's found in a good God. And he says, here's the good life. Here's the blessed life we're all looking for. It's not found in clenching your fist tight and trying to pursue money at the expense of everything else. But nor is it found in pushing money aside and going, you know, God hates money, and so do I. I'm going to be poor for his glory, okay? Okay. No, he says, here's the blessed life. Here's a life satisfied with goodness. Uh, Tim Keller says it this way, that the blessed life, being blessed, I love it. He says, it's it's multidimensional thriving. I love that. What does it mean to be blessed? To be thriving in a multidimensional way. Not just financially, but you're thriving spiritually. You can be materially wealthy and spiritually bankrupt. You can be financially stable, but relationally broken. No, we want to be blessed. Jesus leads us to be a blessed person, to lead a blessed life, not in a prosperity gospel kind of way, but in a way of contentment. He, he describes the blessed life this way, I, and this is as simple as it gets, right? He says, work hard and enjoy the good things in life as a gracious gift from God. That's, the, that's a blessed life. That's a satisfied life. You ever seen someone like this? Someone, they they, they you know, they're not unable to pay their bills for their, for their whole life, but nor are they living like most people on, in Boca on the intercoastal, right? Like they're living comfortably, and there's a godliness with contentment, and it's like fulfilling with great gain. It's a life that says, I'm going to work hard. And I think that's so important, right? Like it doesn't say just sit at home and let the you know, praises go up and the blessings will come down, you know? No, work. Work hard. Work really hard. Like, be tired. That's what he says. Like, you should get good sleep at night because you're working so hard during the day. But as you work hard and you receive that wage, don't clench it, but, but go, God, this is a gracious gift from you. Every good and perfect gift comes from you, and I hold it with an open hand. And now, instead of serving money, I get to serve God and use money for the glory of God. And again, we get here, we said it this way, through the good news of the gospel of Jesus. This is what's amazing about Jesus. Jesus, he doesn't just come into our lives to give us a bunch of teaching about how we can be more financially stable. Jesus doesn't come to sort of skirt over our problems by putting some band-aids on our financial issues. Jesus knew the greatest problem that he could give us, or that he could solve, was the problem of our spiritual bankruptcy. You know, if God knew that our biggest problem was financial, then he would have sent a financial advisor. He knows that the biggest problem is the problem of the heart. The biggest problem right now between you and me and money is sin. It's sin that leads us to worship money instead of God or whatever it is you're worshiping. Here's the good news of the gospel, that though that sin has cut us off from God and has forced us away from God, this God pursues us in his love. Right now he's pursuing you. And he's displayed that love in such a powerful way that though he had everything, he gave it up. Scripture tells us that Jesus, being rich, became poor so that we, through his poverty, we could become rich in him. The great exchange of the gospel. Jesus went to a cross. The Bible says that he made him Jesus who knew no sin. Jesus never knew the sin of greed like you and I do. Jesus became that sin of greed on the cross, that we could become rich in righteousness through him. See, what he wants to give us, guys, is not just a new financial strategy, he wants to give us a new heart. A new heart. A new, a new way to approach life, to approach the resources that we have. And it's only going to come when we see this amazing God of grace from whom all blessings flow, even the very Son of God who gave up His life for us to be right with Him eternally. Is there a greater hope than that? Is there a greater hope than having your heavenly bank account full? There's not. There's not. Amen? Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.